0: Uh, good to be with you this morning, church. Good morning. Great to see you. Uh, as Pastor Todd mentioned, last of three weeks here in Philippians this morning. He starts a brand new series in Revelation next week, with which I know, oh yes, from the front. I know many of you are very, very excited about. No pressure at all, Pastor Todd. Uh, but make sure you're here for that next week. It's going to be great. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16 is where we'll find ourselves this morning. I hope you're reaching there. And as you are, uh, we we love a good resurrection story, don't we? Right? We sure do. It's what so many like captivating books and movies are, are founded on. The, the rags to riches kind of story is so captivating to us, isn't it? You know, we, we think of, the, of the, uh, the boxer that nobody thought would amount to anything, living in Philadelphia, becoming the, the world heavyweight champion in Rocky, Right? Or, or, the, or the, the servant girl who becomes a princess in Cinderella, right? Which is the namesake of what so many of these stories are now referred to as Cinderella stories, right? These stories are so gripping. The people that go with, from going, have, having absolutely no hope from figuratively or sometimes even literally dead to achieving something awesome and great is so captivating for so many. Well, why is that? It's because for so many people in this world, these stories bring them hope of what may come for them. It brings them hope that if they just work hard enough or if they just catch that lucky break, that they too will be able to achieve something great. For us as Christians, our hope isn't in these things. Because we have our own resurrection story so much greater than anything that Hollywood could ever come up with. We live in the reality as Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And because of that, we who are in him live in the power that comes with that. Because as verse 12 in our passage says this morning, Christ Jesus has made me his own. That is the reality for many of us here this morning. We claim the resurrection of Jesus Christ as our greatest hope. We have been raised from the dead along with him. And this truth, as I mentioned already, is the ultimate hope for us in this life, with transcend, which transcends anything that we may face and transforms us when we allow it to take the place of ultimate priority in our lives. So my hope for us this morning, if that is the reality for you, is that these truths will penetrate deeper into your heart and into your life to see gospel transformation in a greater way. My hope and prayer for you, who's here this morning, who does not, who do not have that hope, is that you will see the surpassing worth and value of the hope that comes from the only way to be truly raised from the dead, which comes. In Jesus Christ alone. So with that, let's turn to the text. Let's turn to the word of God that he has for us this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Follow along with me as I read. These are God's words to us this morning. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Our big idea this morning that I've mentioned already is this, my greatest hope is to be raised from the dead. As the stone was rolled away from the tomb and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, walked out alive, so we, as those who identify with him in that, live here and now in the new life that he has accomplished for us. And in that, we can be, see this first, confident that Jesus has made me his. And Paul begins this passage this morning by, by clarifying uh, something that he stated already. He doesn't want there to be any any confusion as to what he has said already. So he says to the Philippians, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Well, what's the this that he's referring to there? It's referring back to verse 11. Paul's specifically talking about the resurrection from the dead. He's saying that I have not received the culmination of my salvation, which is the glorification of my physical body. Paul's saying, I haven't made it there yet. I have not yet received that. I am not yet perfect. I still live here and now with the vestiges of death in sinfulness still clinging to me. There was a heresy, in fact, that was going around in the first century that people believed that the resurrection had happened already. Paul's dispelling that myth right away. I have not yet received the full culmination of the reality of my salvation, which will occur when we see Jesus Christ face to face. That is the ultimate hope of our lives as followers of Jesus. Jesus. That one day, this this sin-stained reality that we live in as individual sinners and corporately as those who live in a sin-tainted world will one day see all of it redeemed and glorified and made sinless. All the hurt, all the pain, the tears, the heartache, the abuse, the injustice, the discipline, the trials, the wars, all one day gone forever. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God would take the things that are broken and make them whole. God would take me broken and make me whole. That, of course, hasn't happened yet for us as it hasn't happened yet for Paul at this point that he is writing. See, the resurrection hope that we have is is not some isolated event that we will one day receive here on this earth. It It is the culmination of all of our hope in Christ alone, which is why Paul says in verse 12 that he presses on to make this his own, not for some prideful reason, not because he wants to be better than anyone else, but because he says in verse 12, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because our reality is there's absolutely nothing that we can do to earn this. Left to our own, we in our sin have no way of earning or deserving of salvation. Our sin reaches out to touch every aspect of who we are. It breaks the image of God that we were created in, which leaves us, whether we know it or not, desperate, depraved, and destined for destruction. God, in His grace, reaches out to us in that. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, for The grace of God has appeared. And it appeared in a person, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace, His, his undeserved favor, came perfectly. As the triune God stepped into creation and Jesus Christ, the son of God came and it's through faith in him that Jesus makes me his. As Jesus takes my sin and the punishment that I rightly deserved. And we, as we talked about last week, I receive his righteousness because the only righteous people get into heaven. And there was no way that we on our own could ever achieve a righteousness that was good enough to to make our way into heaven. We needed an alien righteousness. We needed a righteousness that came from outside of ourselves. And Jesus provided the way for us to receive that. Through faith in him, we are justified in the eyes of God, the righteous judge, given a new life, no longer condemned no longer with the punishment of death hanging over us, and not just first physical death, but second eternal death, which is a just result of sin going undealt with. See, I got what I did not and could not ever deserve when Jesus Christ made me his. And that changes where I place my confidence my confidence is not in myself. It's not in my spouse. It's not in my kids. It's not in my job. It's not in the, in the degrees that I have hanging on my wall. It's not in my savings account. It's not in how much money I bring in every week. My confidence is not in governments. My, comf- my confidence is not in the Christianization of our nation. My confidence is not in a greater legacy. My confidence is not in the next generation. My confidence comes from the Lord God alone. And the reality of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for me. Jeremiah 9.24 says this, Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, God says. And the only way to understand or to know God is to have Jesus take hold of you. I live here and now in the power that raised Jesus from the dead with the promise that one day that power will be completely realized as I have the hope of spending eternity in his presence. As a result, I have Christ confidence. And I hope you see, Christian, how amazing this is. I hope this makes your heart skip with joy you see how incredible it is that Jesus would make this happen for you? Do you wake up every day realizing that you have been raised from the dead along with Christ? Does that impact every single position that you find yourself in, every circumstance that you experience, every conversation that you have? Does it change how you look at the world around you? Are you spending time in this book to see who Jesus is as every single one of its pages points to him. The glory and wonder of the gospel is that Jesus made you his. And the truth of his life and death and resurrection captures us. As Soren Kierkegaard once said, the truth is a snare. You cannot have it without being caught. You cannot have the truth in such a way that you catch it, but only in such a way that it catches you. And I don't know about you, but me in like my own selfish pride, like bristled against this right away. I don't want to be caught by anything. No, nothing's going to catch me. Listen, there's nothing better in this life than being caught in the truth of Jesus Christ. There's nothing better in this life than being caught in the snare of the grace of God seen perfectly as Jesus rolled away the stone of the the tomb that you were once held in because of your sin and walked you out of death in the same way that he did. Jesus made me his own and saved me from sin and death to a resurrection from the dead, which is the greatest of all hopes. And while we recognize, as Paul did, that that is not something that we will achieve perfectly in this life, it nevertheless ought to be our utmost pursuit that I chase after here and now. So if the resurrection from the dead is my greatest hope, then see this next. I'm setting my sights on him alone. You see, the the Christian life is played out in the long term, but we are short-term people. And and the danger with with seeing what Paul calls us to here and the reality that pursuing Christ's likeness is something that will take our entire lives is that people will forsake the lifelong pursuit of Jesus Christ for short-term pleasure. They will cash in on what it takes to follow Jesus, to just receive that short-term pleasure thing that that can bring them some sort of pleasure right now. We'll lull ourselves into complacency, but Paul's perspective stands in complete contrast to that. Look back down to verse 13. He restates his point first. See this. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is a man. So it really should be of no surprise to us that Paul is a one thing man, because man can't multitask, okay? Let's be real honest with ourselves right now, okay? Okay. Mothers, wives, daughters, can anybody agree with me on that? Anybody? Okay. This plays out, I don't know about the rest of you, this plays out in my house so often and and is often perfectly seen on Sunday mornings. My wife is wonderful. She takes care of all of us so well. Her you know, two kids plus a third one sometimes, right? She she gets the kids ready, gets their clothes ready the night before. She has food for us in between services. It's awesome. And she'll be getting all of this done on Sunday morning as we're heading to church. I'll be brushing my teeth. She'll ask me to do like one thing and I'll have to ask her four times what that thing was because I'm so focused on just my one thing, right? Any other men with me on that? Come on now. Love it. Okay, appreciate it. I'm not the only one, thanks. Joking aside, this is the sort of, singular, locked-on focus that we need to have as followers of Christ. Paul is locked onto the target of obtaining the resurrection from the dead like a heat-seeking missile, like a runner that is completely locked in on crossing the finish line. When we run the race of faith, we're not looking behind us. I've been told that it's hard to run while you're looking behind you. I wouldn't have much experience with that whole thing, okay? but I've been told that it's hard. You can't run while you're looking behind you, but so often we do, don't we? You see, what Paul is saying here is that he is forsaking everything that has gone on already in his life, the bad and the good, the failures and the successes. It's easy for us to forget about our failures, isn't it? But so often we want to dwell on our success Man, you see how far I've ran? It's so awesome. Look at me. It's amazing. Look at how how far I've progressed. So often we're too focused on the good old days to recognize what God wants to do in the here and now. Listen, that is no way to run the race of faith. The resurrection from the dead and all that it means for us is our prize. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus—that is our goal. And we've said it before: salvation is not from works, but salvation is certainly to works. It results in works. James two seventeen says, "Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is." dead. And so as one who has been saved by Jesus Christ, who holds the promise of the resurrection power now, as we live here on earth, still struggling against the vestiges of death in our lives, but with the hope of the ultimate expression of that resurrection power to come when we see Jesus face to face and he calls us home, we need to be laser focused on whatever it is that he calls us to. Locked in on pursuing Christ-likeness to the end because resurrection power will change you. So about this, one commentator wrote simply, what one change can you make in order to pursue the one thing that matters the most? What one thing can you change in your life right now to further the pursuit of Christ-likeness. What areas of your life are you distracted in chasing after, in, in straining for, in pressing on for the upward call of God in Jesus Christ, for the prize that we have set before us? What areas of your life do not line up with where and what God is calling you to? Where in your life are you facing down at this world instead of up to Jesus? If you need some help figuring it out. I've got three simple places that we can look to find if our sights are truly set on Jesus. See this first one. How do I spend my time? How do I spend my time? God has given us 24 hours in the day. Okay, give or take six or eight hours that we need for sleeping. We have, know. Nope, 18 hours to play with there. How are you using them? How much of your time every day is spent considering the Lord? How much of your time is spent with him? Romans 13, says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We don't know the time or the day when Jesus Christ is coming back, but we want to be found working for him. Amen? The time we've been given is short, but the implications of how we use that time are massive. So if the greatest hope of your life is truly in the resurrection from the dead, then our time here and now ought to be spent with that resurrection, with eternity in the forefront of our minds. How about this one next? How do I spend my money? And Jesus said, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And we're in tax season, right? Great time for us to reflect on how we've spent our money this year. Does your money serve the Lord and you, or do you serve it? Pastor Todd did a phenomenal series on this called Jesus on Money back in 2016. We've got a link to it actually in the sermon notes at hbc.info. So this is something that you're struggling with. Listen, get Jesus's perspective on it. How I spend my money is an indicator of where I, of what I'm setting my sights on. Or thirdly, how about this one: What do I study? What do I study? And in study, I'm not necessarily referring to like some academic pursuits, but I'm, I'm re- we're thinking about what I spend my time really investing in mentally. And if we we're really honest with ourselves, I think that we could say, and that you would agree with me in saying that a majority of conflicts and issues in the church and amongst Christians would be resolved or not even exist if we spent more time studying the Bible than we do studying politics or other people's lives. It would take time to read the scriptures to know how I am to live in light of the reality that I have been raised from the dead through Christ. I saw a tweet uh, posted a little while ago that said, the best way to interpret scripture is to read it slowly. And I would say the biggest problem in biblical illiteracy is not a lack of resources. It's not even a lack of understanding. It's a lack of effort. Listen, resources are great and helpful. If you need some help getting into God's Word and helping you understand it, listen, we would love to get those resources to you. Text a friend, email a pastor, whatever you need to do. Let's make that happen for you. But none of it is a substitute for spending time meditating on slowly reading the truths of God's Word, allowing the Spirit to work to renew our minds and our hearts as we do so. So like Paul, we need to be a one-thing people. Straining toward Christ-likeness with our eyes locked on the prize that awaits us in the form of the resurrection from the dead, pursuing spiritual maturity, growing in Christ-likeness in everything. And finally this, abandoning every other way but his In the final two verses of our passage this morning, Paul is calling his readers to unity. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. The Philippians are to share the perspective that that Paul has just given to them, the humility of of living with the same recognition that Paul had, that, that none of them have made it, and none of us will make it until we are called home to spend eternity with Jesus Christ until we see him face to face. And listen, that allows you to be patient with people. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. And when I realize that I am the worst sinner I know and understand the reality that even in that, Jesus Christ died for me, It frees me to bear with others in love, in patience, and in grace. We are to set our eyes solely on him with an understanding that that God bears with us in that. And if there is anything incorrect that we believe, if there's any misconduct in our lives, that will be revealed and drawn out by God, as Paul says. And Timothy Keller once said, the Bible says our biggest problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. And in his book, Center Church, Keller does a masterful job of of drawing out this idea and breaking down the reality that that there are really three responses to God. We could spend plenty of time unpacking all of the different ways that we ought to be abandoning apart from Christ. By the end of the day, they really break down into three categories. Okay. Two bad, one good. Two not helpful, one helpful. Two ways of rejecting God, one way of accepting him. Do you want the good one or the bad ones first? I was just being polite. I'm giving you the bad ones first anyway. Okay. (laughs) We'll end this on a good note. The first way that we reject God is irreligion. Okay. Irreligion. It is is flat out denying the existence of God or at least the reality of the gospel, the ways of Christ, denying entirely the realities of the cross and the empty tomb, willfully rebelling against God. Avoiding him by ignoring him altogether, living out the eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of mantra. It is to live with the Gospel of relativism in the forefront of our minds. Believing that what is good is relative to the individual. I choose the way that I'm going to live my life. I choose what is valuable. Or as often is often played out in, in the phrase, uh, to each their own. Is seeking to fill the hole that you have in your life with whatever you get your hands on that feels good. But if it hasn't already... I suspect it probably has, maybe on more than one occasion. That feeling is going to run out, and you're going to end up empty and looking for something more. That hole that you are trying to fill, God put there. Ecclesiastes says that he has put eternity into man's hearts. You are trying to fill a void that is shaped by God and can only be filled by God. If that's you and you are living in this way, you are trying, you are hungering after something, the ways that you're pursuing will never truly satisfy. You are thirsting after things that the ways that you are pursuing will never truly quench it. The only one who can is Jesus. Who says in in John chapter 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So if that's you and you're living in that today, there is a resurrection from the dead waiting for you to, be, to receive it right now. And you don't need somebody to pray this for you. This is between you and the Lord and you can do it right where you're sitting or wherever you are right now watching online. You can cry out to God, recognizing the reality of your sinfulness and the result, the result that your sin brings you, which is the chasm that exists between you and God, the, the broken relationship that can only truly be bridged, that can only truly be fixed by the cross of Jesus Christ. And you can call out asking for forgiveness, pleading with Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, and you can do that right now. The hope, the peace, the joy, the purpose that you are looking for is only found in the resurrection from the dead that Jesus offers to you. Second way of rejecting God is religious observance. Believing that in some way I can do enough good things to earn my salvation. This is the perspective of, I obey, therefore I am saved. Martin Luther famously said that this is the default setting of every human heart. Even those who are irreligious, by the way, establish what they deem as worth it and find their value in that. For the religious, the things that we value, or the things that we find our worth in are in our works. And we cover it up and make it okay by putting the God category all over it. But in reality, living religiously, adhering to a set of rules is to develop our own personal righteousness and believe that it in some way way results in God owing me something because of it is just flat out wrong. This is using the things that God has laid out for us to do as a way to achieve our own salvation. And it's not motivated out of a love of God. It's motivated out of fear. It's motivated out of insecurity. It's motivated out of pride in being better than others. And it is done not in order to do things for God, but in order to get things from God. When things go wrong, I quickly blame God because I believe I'm good enough to deserve only good things from him. One example, go look at Job's friends. When others criticize me, it cripples me because essential to my worldview is the fact that I think I am a good person. My prayer life is filled with only petitions, only asking things from God, and it only really occurs in earnest when I'm in trouble. My identity is based around only how good I am and so I look down on people who aren't living up to my standard. I judge and criticize them. Compare myself to others always. And if we are honest with ourselves, we all stumble into this. As too often a majority of, of us as believers are living functionally like this. We may have came to the the truth of the gospel through recognizing what Christ has done and believing that salvation comes only by God's grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We can stumble into this all too often, functionally believing that my good works have done me enough to deserve God's favor and blessing. When in reality, believing that your church attendance, the amount that you give, how often that you serve, how moral you are in comparison to other people, thinking that it will give you enough brownie points to earn your way into heaven is a false gospel that will never truly satisfy. And instead, the way of Christ, the way of accepting God comes only through faith in the gospel. The perspective that through Christ, I am saved and therefore I obey. In understanding the weight of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on my behalf and the reality of the resurrection and what it means for me, I am so filled with joy and love that it motivates me to live for Christ in all that I do. When things go wrong, I am not destroyed. I realize that it's God doing a work in me. My identity is wrapped up in God's love for me in Christ and the power of his that is at work within me, not in how others see me. My identity is not self-focused. It is Christ-focused and fueled by a surrendering to the spirits guiding in my life, which impacts every part of who I am. My prayer life is for fellowship with God out of a desire to be closer to him. It is filled with praise and adoration, not just petition. My self-view is not myself, but the reality that I, when I was lost, Christ sought me out. That my sins needed him to die in order for them to be properly atoned for and completely atoned for. And he loved me enough to be willing to go. Causes me to see the good things in my life that God has blessed me with as not the ultimate thing. And as a result, to see anxiety and fear and anger slip away when those things are threatened. To live in the way of Christ means to live out the command of verse 16. To hold true to what we have attained. To latch on to the reality of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for me and what I receive from him alone. And this remains the greatest hope of our life in Christ. As he gave up his life for me, I am willing then to give up my life for him and to one day receive the new life that I am promised. Christian, God has begun a good work in you that he will bring to completion. Surrender to that work, to his way. Abandon every other way but his. Have how you speak, what you think, how you care for others, be founded and impacted by Jesus Christ alone. The hope is that as we could fast forward in chapter three, just a moment, that Christ will, chapter three, verse 21, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? This is the resurrection power at work within us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope that you can say this for yourself. My greatest hope is to be raised from the dead. Confident that Jesus had made, has made me his, I set my sights on him alone. And abandon every other way but his. So in all things, let's live for the resurrected Savior. Let's point others to the resurrected Savior until we see face to face our resurrected Savior. Amen? Let me pray for us. Mighty God, what else have we to say but thank you? What else have we to express but great love and gratitude and humility in light of the fact that we so often miss the mark in recognition of the reality that we were once your enemies, focused only on ourselves. Our sins separated us from you and we could never make the mark to earn or deserve your love, your blessing, or your favor. And yet you, while we were still sinners, sent your own son who died in our place so that we could have forgiveness and who rose to new life, defeating sin and death in us forever. And we live in that here and now and the promise of that completed to come when we see you face-to-face, Jesus. Thank you, God, for being long-suffering with us for continuing to work in and through us in this. So I pray for every person in this room. I pray for those who have not yet come to you in faith, Lord. Would you call them to yourself and would they respond? Would they receive the resurrection life and power in this place right now? And I pray for those of us who have received that and yet in some way are seeking to live apart from that whether slipping into religious observance being our hope or whether the passions of this world in our flesh have gained a foothold in our hearts. God, I pray by the work of your spirit that you would bring all things under your rule in our lives. Because Jesus, you are our one and only hope, the one and only way to salvation and forgiveness. So would we be people Would we be one thing, people, completely focused on you and the implications that you, Jesus, are our greatest hope? We pray all these things in your powerful name.